On each of the four Sundays of Advent this year, we're going to be hearing from a different family who will be giving us um, a taste of their experience, their personal testimony to how being involved in Advent Conspiracy the past few years has changed and is changing um, their view and their, just their experience and what their family is doing and believing and, and just thinking about the Christmas season in general. Um, so Nick and Megan Kodeman are going to talk to us today um, just a little bit about Advent Conspiracy and a new normal um, that their family is creating um, to be able to celebrate Advent and Christmas. Good morning. How are you all today? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. For our family in the past Christmas, well, with Nick's family has always been a lot of gifts and a lot of money spent on Christmas. And with my family, it's been um, a huge emphasis on the worldly view of Christmas and Santa, and but then also my mom trying to teach us that Jesus is the reason for the season. And so for my family, it's kind of been some confusion with all of us growing up as to, you know, what's real, what's not, and what's, what is important when it comes to Christmas. And with Nick's family, it's still, still kind of a struggle with them spending a lot of money on us and the kids and that kind of thing. So we're still working on that with them. But some things that we have been doing and changing with our family just since Advent, you know, the past three years of Advent, um, is we've just been trying to put more emphasis on spending time together as a family and doing things together instead of gifts and such. And so one thing we do is we do Secret Santa with all of my siblings and their spouses and everything. And then this year we're starting Secret Santa with all the kids so that we don't have to buy gifts for everybody. And then some of the other things that we've done to do fun things together and have family time is one year we um, we all loaded up into one car. This was on Christmas Eve. Drove to Walgreens and you had five minutes in Walgreens and five dollars and you had to get a gift for a white elephant gift exchange. And so we took turns two at a time going in and then coming out and then we would wrap the gifts from whatever you could find at home to wrap them in and then did white elephant gift exchange. Um, another time we how did that go? Um, we, everyone drew Christmas songs, so you picked a Christmas song, and no one knew what you had, and then you had to somehow, with things from the house, come up with a way to, like, act it out, or display it, or draw it, or whatever, without using words, and then have us try to guess it, and so that was, like, a whole night of entertainment for us. (laughs) So we have tried to do things like that, and then, um, just like Bob had talked about last week, that we try to spend half as much as what we used to and give the rest to Advent or to something else. And uh, we've, it's, we've been talking a lot moving forward. We've got a, a three-and-a-half-year-old and then a one-year-old, and so um, talking a lot about just establishing traditions within the house because the kids are starting to get old enough to where they understand. Um, and so we've been struggling through what to do with the whole Santa Claus versus St. Nicholas thing and, uh, and just talking through. I think we're going to try... I think our goal is to put a put a big, more of an emphasis on the whole Saint Nick thing, um, and talk more about Jesus' birthday and and have kind of a celebration. Maybe even make Jesus a birthday cake. I think Bob or some people have made that suggestion, um, 
and and just have time um, of giving outweigh the time of getting, I guess, whether it's talking about things to give or um, serving, things like that. Um, another great idea that we've had, um, and, and I guess maybe to preface all of this, we've been spending a lot of time talking just with friends and with our small group about different ideas and different ways to make Christ the important part of, of Christmas. And uh, another great idea um, that we got was giving three gifts, and I think we're going to do this with our kids, is get three gifts just to symbolize gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, and, and we think what we're going to do is, is something that they need, something they can read, and then something that they want. So just kind of a little more focus around just a little more practical Christmas and things like that. Um, I think that's all. It's, it's nice to see all your beautiful smiling faces this morning. It's funny to not have a guitar to hide behind. It's a little bit awkward. <laughs> Thanks. My only request is that you would keep smiling as I speak as well. Um, so kids, elementary kids, you guys are free to, to head out. I did forget to mention earlier, um, when you came in today, I think you got a, a little sheet um, that has some, some of the Advent themes on it in addition to your, <clears throat> your program this morning. And what we're really encouraging people to do, and we've done this during different seasons around here, whether it be Lent um, or Advent, um, we have a season where we uh, kind of intentionally ask people to pray. And um, so our, our hope would be that um, in the next four weeks that you might choose one other person from uh, our congregation or somebody you work with who you know is a Christian, and just commit to once a week getting together with them and praying. Um, you could pray through the themes of Advent. You can just kind of pray for this season and uh, that people would really see Christ in you and that you know, God would help uh, change the way that you guys celebrate as a family if there's some, some need for that there. Um, but you might just take four weeks where you kind of intentionally pray through some of those things. And so we're going to continue to give you some things here in the next few weeks to kind of help with that time. But you might be thinking about one other person who you might be able to connect with and just make it a goal for the next four weeks to meet with them once a week and to spend some time in prayer together. So if you've been around our church um, during this Advent season and while we've been a part of the Advent Conspiracy Movement, you know that there are four main themes that go along with uh, Advent Conspiracy, and those are to worship fully, spend less, give more, and love all. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about those middle two uh, themes, and we're really kind of going back and joining the theme of our sermons that we've been kind of going on since the beginning of the year, which the the, the topic is called Life Together, and it's focusing on how we live as the body of Christ. So today we're going to be talking about um, generosity, but I don't really want this to be a discussion that's only focused on the Christmas season, like that's the only time that we're generous, but it would just be something that would be an overarching theme over how we view and spend money just in general all year long. Um, in terms of how we apply that to, to being a part of a local church and the family believers and also a part of a larger church around the world. So today we're going to be talking about money. And for those of you that come here uh, regularly, you know that this is not a topic that we talk about very much. We don't pass around a plate at Wellspring for our offering. We just have a box in the back. And we know that there are lots of people that have a lot of weird feelings about money in church and maybe have had some bad experiences with those things in the past. So we don't want to make it a, a weekly issue here. 
But the reality is that God does talk a lot about the money that he's given us and how we're supposed to spend that and use that. And um, so we can't really ignore it either. So what I want to do uh, to begin with today is if you could just kind of get your program and a pen. I want to just get your immediate reaction. When, when I come before you and I start the service with, hey, we're going to be talking about money, what is your emotional reaction to that? Uh, are you feeling excitement and like eagerness or dread or guilt? Or how would you define what that emotion is you feel? And then secondly, where does that emotion come from, you think? What, what, what previous experiences or life experiences makes you react that way initially when you hear that that's going to be the topic that day. So if you have something on your mind, just jot it down real quickly to kind of give you a baseline for where we're going today. Hey, I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to... 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it's page 804, if you're using a pew Bible. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to be taking a look at the first five verses, and this is Paul writing to the church in the city of Corinth. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So as you look through that first five those first five verses, what jumps out of you in terms of their attitude towards giving of the Macedonian people? What are what are some phrases about giving that kind of stand out? Just raise your hand if you find one you can share with us. Yeah, Jordan? Okay, so beyond their ability, what else? Yeah. The privilege of sharing. Yeah. Overflowing joy. What else? Extreme poverty. Anything else? It says they urgently pleaded. All right. Okay. So just to give you a little background here, um, you hear that phrase Macedonian, and it's like, where's that? Um, the Macedonian churches um, would be in the area just north of Greece. If you think of where Athens is, if you can get in your mind, Macedonia would be a little north of that, would include some churches that Paul planted um, in towns like Philippi, where we get the Philippians, and Thessalonica, where we get the book of Thessalonians. So that's kind of the, the churches that he's speaking to here, he's talking about these Macedonians. But it's interesting, as we started that passage of scripture, looking at at verse 1, Paul began this chapter by telling a story about generosity instead of just going to those people and and just giving them a plea for money. He tells a story. 
And there's something powerful about a story and about people's experiences that kind of draws others in. And so I want you guys to be kind of junior detectives with me this morning. And I want you to, to kind of figure out like what, what might have been going on. So here's the question. What truths or experiences in the lives of the Macedonian people could have contributed to that kind of response and attitude towards generosity? What do you think that their generosity might have been fueled by? Just take some guesses. What might have fueled that kind of radical generosity on their part? Yeah, Diana. Okay. 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 All right, so maybe there was this new excitement over giving that uh, kind of was the snowball effect. Once it's got going, they, they love that feeling of being generous. What else? Any other theories? Yeah, Stacey. Well, I mean, that passage starts with something mm -hmm. like, out of their most severe trial. And mm -hmm. there's just something about a severe trial that helps put everything into perspective and helps you realize what has value and what doesn't. And they may have realized that some of their possessions and resources didn't have much value if they kept it to themselves. Okay. She said that, that this was, was uh, spurred out of a severe trial. And sometimes in the midst of severe trial, we kind of realize what's important and what isn't. And that might have kind of fueled some of uh, their giving desire. Any other theories? Yeah, Zan? Just complete obedience to God and realizing that being more fulfilled by obeying what God wanted and what he asked than from material possessions. Okay, a greater desire to be obedient to God than, you know, maybe because of the material possessions, yeah. Okay, so out of a relationship first with Christ and that thankfulness that wells up in their hearts from that might have fueled that. Give a Okay. Okay. So they'd experienced some kind of grace um, in their own life that, that kind of fueled that, uh, that desire. Um, they understood, what, I mean, the thoughts that came to me was just that whole idea of being understand what the, understanding what they'd been rescued from. Um, you know, I thought maybe that they understood how the giving of other people in other churches and other towns to support Paul's ministry had blessed them in ways that they couldn't even see. And so they understood that somebody else's giving had blessed their community and that now they wanted to do that to bless other people. Um, or just the idea that God had given was what was most precious to him. Um, they wanted to do the same. So 
it's been my experience in my Christian life that um, biblical concepts like generosity or forgiveness or humility can only be understood in the, in the, context, the context of experience. You know, you can tell people all day long that you need to be loving and forgiving to other people. The Bible says you, you should do that. But until somebody has really been loved and been forgiven, uh, it's really hard to, to do those things when there's no context behind it. Um, usually it works better out of a sense of experience. And as the church, we can give sermons upon sermons about generosity, and we can try to twist people's arms and, and fill them with guilt trips or demand that they be obedient because God says that we're supposed to give. But until their hearts have been captured by the generosity of God, and we have this understanding that God gave to us what was most precious to him as one and only son that we might live, our motivation for giving won't last. And so our desire to model our actions and behavior after Christ always has to flow from a realization that God extended all of those things to us first. That's why the Bible reminds us that we love because Christ first loved us. So to inspire generosity, Paul tells a story about radical generosity. And as we, as we mentioned, some of you mentioned in verse 2, Paul describes the circumstances under which the Macedonians exhibited this generosity. He says that they were experiencing a severe trial. And a lot of times when that phrase is used in the New Testament, it means that there was some kind of persecution going on in the church. You know, it was, it was against the, the Roman law, the Roman Empire, to, to be a Christian at that time. So you can just imagine what some things might have happened in those cities if you identified yourself with Christ. You might have lost your job or your property or your status in society. So something has gone on there. Um, and it says that those trials left them in a place of extreme poverty. And I'd venture to guess that there's not many of us in here who have really dealt with what extreme financial poverty looks like. And so the closest context that I guess we can maybe relate to, but I think that all of us can maybe understand what it is to have a sense of spiritual poverty, a sense of, um, you know, just longing for something, a sense of just really looking for answers and being desperate at different times in our lives, that there's this emptiness in us. And I don't know about you, but when things aren't going my way in life, and I've got to be honest with you, I, I can't really ever say that I've ever experienced really what I would consider a severe trial in my life. And so whatever it is that I've experienced in life to this point would be much less than this. And I can tell you how I react at just the level of trials that I endure in life. When things aren't going my way, I tend to get really discouraged. I tend to get really self-focused and maybe disillusional about what's going on in life. But Paul said that just the opposite happened here. He says, in the midst of severe trial, in the midst of extreme poverty, what happened? They exhibited what? It says they exhibited overflowing joy. Obviously, a joy that wasn't based on the circumstances they were experiencing at the time, because those experiences were, and circumstances were pretty tough. And it says that this overflowing joy that they had welled up into rich generosity. And so one of the questions that came to my mind as I, as I worked my way through this is, <clears throat> When I'm experiencing trials in life, what is it that wells up in me? In my thoughts, my actions, my words? Is it things like generosity and, and love and compassion? Are those some of the first things that come out of me when I experience trials in life? 
And what did that generous spirit look like exactly? Verse three through five gives us a little bit of insight into that. It says that first they gave beyond their ability. You see, for some people, uh, you know, that kind of use 10% giving as kind of their standard. For some people in our culture, in America, giving 10% doesn't really affect their life a whole lot. It doesn't even really, really hurt them that much. Um, C.S. Lewis has an interesting quote about this whole concept of giving and just his, his opinion on that. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. See, the problem, as most of us are aware, is that this kind of sacrificial giving, of of giving beyond what we feel like our ability is, um, that's a radical thought in our culture. Because our culture, and you know, it's telling us the exact opposite story. And especially at Christmas, and you probably already heard the advertisements, the, the things that our culture continue tells us is that you deserve it. You know, you've earned it. Go out and get what you deserve, you know, because you've worked hard for those things. And that isn't the picture of generosity that Paul or Jesus lift up as pleasing to God. And in Luke 21, Jesus tells us a story that makes this point very clear. Verses 1 through 4, he says, As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The specific amount or the percentage of your income isn't what really matters. What really matters, if we're going to kind of mirror God's heart towards giving, towards generosity, is, is do we give in a way in which it stretches our faith, in a way that, that seems beyond what we feel like is, is capable for us. Secondly, in verse 3, he tells us that they gave entirely on their own. So kind of on their own, without any arm twisting, without any guilt trips, they gave just by free choice. Why is that such an important concept or an important, important detail in this story? How many of you have children? How many of you have had the conversation with them about being generous? Isn't it cool when they do it when you don't make a big deal about it? Isn't that really what we're hoping will happen, Right? I mean, I know, I've, I've, I've had the envelope system with my kids, you know, this mount goes to church and this mount, you know, but when I have to like twist their arm to give, that's really not what God wants. God wants us to create a sense in them that they get to give, that, that on their own accord that they would come and bring their offerings to whatever it is that they feel compelled to give to. 
Verse 4 goes on to say that they urgently pleaded with Paul for the privilege of sharing. You know, I don't have very many of those conversations. (laughs) The original Greek in which this was written paints a picture of people begging Paul. That, That phrase, urgently pleading, literally means begging him to give. Bob, please let me give. Take my money, please. I don't have many of those conversations uh, at Wellspring. I haven't been that person to pastors. I've gone to churches of in the past either. That whole idea, that picture, that's a totally different reality than reluctantly, you know, dropping your 10% or even really just cheerfully dropping your 10%, your kind of expected gift in the offering. Pleading for the privilege they urgently pleaded for the, for, for the privilege of sharing in what? Paul says, in this service to the saints. What's he talking about here? The context behind this offering, I think, is pretty important for us to understand. Paul is taking an offering of churches in um, you know, the uh, Mediterranean region, kind of in, in the area of Greece, Macedonia, for the churches uh, in the southern area of Judea in, in Israel, where Jerusalem was uh, located. A couple of reasons why those churches down there were in desperate need. For one, the persecution there was pretty intense. It was the place, obviously, where Jesus' ministry was, where he was crucified. So there's a lot of persecution there. There was also a famine, a pretty severe famine in the late 40s AD. And so when Paul is traveling and he's planting these new churches, he's asking these Greeks to give an offering to their Jewish brothers in the south. People, those people are never going to meet, probably. And for 10 years, he, he collects an offering, and whenever he comes to Jerusalem, he, he drops it off. So that's kind of the context. Um, and there really was this sense of family present, that this understanding that when one part of the body of Christ suffers, that everybody suffers. And so people were pleading for the opportunity to share in the service to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul talks about this offering in the book of Romans He says, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. One commentator said the collection was a tangible representation of the gospel, that in Christ there is neither Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male or female. He's quoting the book of Galatians. The gospel of Christ. Christ cuts through all of those societal biases, and in him we were all one body. That's what this collection was communicating. So what goes through our minds and our hearts when as we sit here in in St. Joseph, Missouri, and we hear about the needs of our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing intense persecution for their faith or they're experiencing war or dying from treatable diseases or starving or dealing with a lack of clean water? What do we think? Are those people just strangers to us? Are they, you know, people that aren't our problem because, you know, we don't see it every day? Or do we maybe sometimes kind of cynically judge their situations like, well, if they would have just do this or if their government would do that, they wouldn't have those problems, so why am I going to give my hard-earned money to these people? And Notice in verse 5, Paul says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. He 
You see, our, our giving has to flow first from a desire to honor God and his gracious generosity towards us. You see, his word tells us that while we were still sinners, before we had done anything to earn his mercy and love and compassion for us, it says Christ died for us. See, I'm really glad that God didn't wait around until he deemed me worthy of his love and mercy and grace before he excited to extend that offer to me. So who am I in my life to look upon other people's situations and say, I just don't know if, they, if they're going to really spend that money well or if they really deserve a second chance or my giving. See, God's radical generosity compels us to radically give. I want you to skip down to verse 12. It says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. So the amount is not the issue. It's the willing spirit behind the gift that makes it acceptable. So what is the attitude of our heart towards giving? Do we do that willingly? And this last section, starting in verse 13, is, is really critical to understand. Paul says to the Macedonians, he's like, he's like, guys, I'm not trying to make it difficult on you so that all of a sudden the Jews can be all wealthy from your gift. It's not that I want you to suffer so that other people won't have to. He's saying, I want there to be equality in the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean practically for us today in our culture? Does that mean that um, in order there to be equality in the kingdom, should we pool all of the Christians in the world's money and then divide it by all the Christian families that are all in the world and make sure that everybody's got the same amount? Is that what it means to be to have equality in the kingdom of God. And let's just use, let's say we did that and we found out $20,000 per family. We could spread it all out and everybody would get 20 grand. Would that make things equal? Well, no, it wouldn't because the cost of living in different parts of the world is all over the map. If you had $20,000 in India, you might live a pretty extravagant life. Whereas if you had $20,000 in New York City, you'd be homeless, okay? So you can't think of it in terms of how we view equality. The better translation of that whole sentiment here is this concept of equity. Equity is focused more on fairness or justice. And I really believe that in the kingdom of God, there should be equity in terms of the basic needs of people. That every Christian or every person in the world ought to have access to food and clean water and medicine and shelter and kids ought to have adults or parents that are loving them and caring for them, all the basic needs of humanity. And right now, there is a huge disparity in the family of God. This massive discrepancy between the Christians in our world who have it and the ones that don't. And here's the honest reality, is that God has a plan to take care of this problem. And it centers around this whole issue of generosity. You see, even if we want to lower the bar 
Because but he's, t- he's talking about radical giving above and beyond our ability. If we just want to bring it down to just giving 10%, even if we started there, because for one, you know, most Christians in the, in the country, the average is about 2 to 3% of their income is what they give. So if all the Christians in the world gave 10%, we would wipe out world hunger. There would be wells all over the place. Every child in the world would get inoculated for diseases. Every person with AIDS would have medication that would treat their disease. It's not that there's a lack of money. It's that there's a lack of generosity that's fueled by a scarcity of compassion that allows all of us, including me, to be aware of the needs of others in our world, but somehow convince ourselves that it's okay for us to continue to live and spend the way we do. I could go on about this topic for a long time. Um, And I I can tell you that it's not fun to be the person who's studying this and wrestling with this all week and writing this message, knowing that I've got a long way to go (laughs) in learning how to be rich in generosity. So let me just end with this today. Our hope is that through our participation in the Advent Conspiracy, is that we would be creating new stories of generosity together. And my hope is that one day, my family and my three kids, that they're going to look back on our participation in this, and they're going to say, man, do you remember when we decided to cut back on some gifts a little bit? And when we used our money to, to help people who had greater needs in this world than we did so that they could be blessed. I want their experience here to kind of pave the way for how they're going to view Christmas and generosity when they start their own family's traditions one day. And more than anything, I want them to be fueled out of an understanding on their part of God's amazing generosity to them. And I want it to be something that they do entirely on their own because they understand how much Christ gave them and they're convinced that generosity mirrors the heart of God. Our culture and our children are desperate for a different story, a greater story than the hollow one that our culture is providing them now. We need stories that can rescue us. Gary Haugen puts it like this. I've shared this quote in the past before. It's from a book called Just Courage. You can put it up there and follow along with us. He says this, Indeed, over and over in Scripture, God promises to pour out his presence and power on those who choose to follow him in his work of justice in the world. Certainly, the work of justice brings marvelous rescue and joy to the victims of injustice. But God wants his people to know that the work of justice benefits the, will, uh, benefits the people who do it as well. It is a means of rescue, not only for the powerless, but also for the powerful, who otherwise waste away in a world of triviality and fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, more than anything, we need an understanding of your generosity towards us. God, you gave us what we didn't deserve. Love and forgiveness and hope and peace. The privilege of being called your child. God, how can we withhold 
from our brothers and sisters in Christ in this world who we know are suffering. Lord, it's, it's challenging. Um, and a lot of times it's just a lot easier just to not think about it and just keep doing what we want. But Lord, your, your word um, is consistent in, in trying to get us to understand what it means to be a part of a family. And a family member doesn't sit back and allow other people to suffer, God. So we've got to confront our views on things. Lord, you, you need to fill us with, with your kind of, of generosity that goes above and beyond. Lord, that we might have the heart of the, of the widow who stretched herself in faith when she saw a need. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we are a part of this uh, Advent conspiracy movement, that you might change things in us, change the way in which we celebrate as a family, change the way in which we view our resources, God, that they could be a blessing to others so that others might live, Lord. And we pray that we would be creating new stories in people's hearts here, in our own and our children, towards generosity, that that reflects your heart for your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.